The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. We'll be reading through verse 46 this morning. The word of the Lord. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God." And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed, out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James, James chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. We'll be reading through verse 20 this morning, which is also the end of our, this chapter. The word of our God. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover 
a multitude of sins. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Who switched the price tags? That's the brilliant title to what is frankly a rather mediocre book. But I want you to focus on the title this morning. Who switched the price tags? We are so easily tempted to chase after those things which bring us immediate pleasure, an immediate sense of self-worth, or an immediate sense of recognition that we can run around like fish chasing after a, a, a shiny lure in the water and squander our lives. We can so easily pursue passing accolades as though they were the most important things in our lives while we treat our wives, our husbands, our children, and the kingdom of God as though it's kind of shabby merchandise on the discount rack in the back of the consignment store. We all know that that's true, and so we have to ask that question. Who switched the price tags? The reality is, is the answer to that question is we switched them in our own hearts. The truth that it is difficult to stay focused on the things that truly matter is something that James has been hitting at us throughout the entire letter. It is easy for us to pour our hopes, our dreams, our sweat and our tears into making the team, getting into the right school, getting that job, getting that promotion. All things that are fine in themselves, but things that in fact will pass away. Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with going to the college you want to go to, getting a good job, getting promoted, getting a house that you really like and give thanks to God for. The problem is not achieving or owning those things. The problem comes when those things own us, when we take temporal things and we treat them as though they are ultimate things. Left to ourselves, that's easy for us to do. Left to ourselves, we easily miss out on what is most important. But thankfully, the Lord has not left us to ourselves. Throughout the Bible, the Lord repeatedly redirects us to that which is truly important, that which matters for all eternity. God has called you to have lives that matter, that make an impact for good in this present world, but also an impact that will bear fruit forever. One of the places the Lord famously tells us what those priorities are is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love. The Lord is telling us that in order to focus on that which will matter forever, we need to focus on faith, hope, and love. That is what the Lord is saying to the Apostle Paul, and interestingly enough, that is precisely what James has been telling us throughout this letter. If we're going to focus on that which will last forever, we must be focusing on faith, hope, and love, not simply as isolated individuals. James is calling us to become a community of faith, a community of believers who are shaped by our commitment to faith, hope, and love. So James concludes this fairly challenging letter by giving us both sides of the coin, by telling us, don't do this, do that instead. James begins in verse 12 by sharply forbidding the type of self-willed behavior that is the polar opposite of faith, hope, and love. That's actually a really important point that will help you see how this passage fits together. That this is not an isolated line that just gets dropped down into James's epistle. Verse 12 is James telling us, don't do this. Precisely so, when he gets to 13 through verse 20, he will tell us, you ought to live by faith, hope, and love instead. Look at verse 12 with me. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. At first blush, that can be really confusing. And perhaps even after you study it for a while, that can still be pretty confusing. Does James really mean above all? Now, if you're perplexed a bit by that, you're in really good company. Uh, Professor Doug Moo, one of the finest New Testament scholars in the entire world, currently he's the chair of the NIV Translation Committee, he writes this about this passage. Can James really mean the prohibition of oaths is the most important thing he wants to say in the letter. More important than doing the word, than obeying the love command, than submitting to God's grace in Christ. Surely not. Professor Moo goes on to say that it's probably just a literary marker there at the end of the passage. He doesn't really mean above all. He just kind of means it like, and for the rest. Professor Moo is one of the finest New Testament scholars in the entire world, and so we ought to take what he's saying seriously. On the other hand, James is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that means we ought to take him even more seriously. 
And what I'd like to do this morning is offer you a different way of understanding this passage that takes that above all, with all its force, as though James really means what he's writing, and see how it actually fits together with James calling us to a life marked out by faith, hope, and love. We need to start with how verse 12 connects with the rest of the chapter. Professor Mu, along with many commentators, treats verse 12 essentially as an isolated idea, an individual verse that James just wanted to plop down into his letter and he had to get it in before he finished. Uh, others try to connect verses 12 through uh, verse 12 with verses 7 through 11. But if you read verse 12 as though it's the beginning of the conclusion of the letter, that is, as though it goes with verses 13 through 20, everything will start to fall into place. Verses 13 through 20 conclude the letter by encouraging us to pursue faith, hope, and love together as the people of God. Verse 12 is describing a type of self-willed behavior, behavior that is the polar opposite of faith, hope, and love. So rather than saying that not swearing in this particular way that he's talking about is more important than doing the word, than obeying the love command, than submitting to God's grace in Christ, James is saying that not swearing in this way is necessary in order to do the word to obey the love command, and to submit to God's grace in Christ. And once we see that he's going, don't do this, do this instead, that the passage actually fits together very nicely. So let's read verse 12 again, and then I'm going to try to unpack it for you in three points. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Three points. First, it is important to see that James is not forbidding all oaths and vows. He's actually forbidding people swearing by heaven, earth, any other created thing, a prohibition that was already given multiple times in the Old Testament. Right, to swear by the earth or to swear by heaven is actually to sin. It's a violation of the Old Testament law. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Now that commandment comes right after the famous Shema that faithful Jews would pray at least three times a day, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it comes right after the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, context is helpful because when the Lord is saying, you shall swear by the name of Yahweh alone, he's saying that that's part of loving God. It's part of putting your faith in God, your unique loyalty in God, that he alone is the one you would swear by. The point is to take vows or oaths in the name of anyone or anything other than the Lord is a denial of faith in the living God. Now keep in mind that this was a very real problem in the Jewish community at the time when James was writing this letter. Uh, you can actually see that in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus has to confront people with the various oaths they're making, 
and they found all kinds of weird and tricky ways of coming up with um, O's that they could get out of. And so they would say, well, you know, if you swear by the temple, well, that's not really binding. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, that you've got to keep. And James is saying, none of that nonsense is going to pass in the Christian community. It was sin for them. It would be sin for us, too. Don't go there. Don't do that. The Lord himself tells us that we're to swear only in his name. Everything else is a betrayal of faith in God. To put the matter bluntly, disobeying the commandments of God is the polar opposite of doing the word. The very thing that Professor Moose so rightly wants us to focus on. Don't do this. Do that instead. Second, we should ask why people invent man-made oaths in the first place. You can think about that in your own life, why young children do it. I hope that none of you are doing this right now, but you can easily get the idea why people would do this. Why do people invent man-made oaths? Well, the answer is simple. We want people to give more weight to our words than they otherwise would. It's really that simple. It's about me. I want people to take me seriously, to trust me, my account of the story. And so I swear an oath. You understand that's fundamentally selfish. Instead of pointing away from myself and saying the authority belongs with the living God, pointing away from myself to Jesus Christ, it's about saying my word must be the end of the story. And beloved, to swear like that, is a denial of faith in Jesus Christ. This attempt to get other people to agree with us by spontaneously asserting all sorts of oaths is essentially a selfish and self-willed undertaking. It is the polar opposite of genuine faith, which points beyond us to Jesus. Third, it will help you to understand a bit of what was going on in the Jewish community. Remember, these are Jewish Christians. What was going on a bit in the Jewish community in the time of Christ and the time of James regarding oaths. As J. Alec Moitier points out, swearing oaths was so common among the Jewish people that pagan writers frequently commented on this practice. Specifically, they wrote about the heedless and false swearing that was common among the Jews. And you can see how you get that false swearing from the idea, well, you know, I actually swore by the temple, not not by the gold in the temple, right? And so there's this reputation around the Mediterranean that Jewish people have for heedless and false swearing. Well, that's enough for James to say, listen, that drags God's name from the mud. And you as Christians cannot drag Christ's name to the mud in that way. Don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yet there's something else. Jewish zealots routinely bound themselves together with these oaths in order to take vengeance upon their enemies. Uh, You can almost think of them as sort of um, those radical groups that move up to the Pacific Northwest. They bind themselves together with oaths. They get heavily armed, and they're going to fight and stand against everything that has gone wrong in America. You can almost think of them like that, except they weren't so private. People knew about them, including the chief priests. Uh, What they normally started as is a group that was resisting Rome. They were going to get with the program. You know, the government wasn't going to do it, but our group is going to throw off the Roman yoke that is upon us. 
We actually see when Jesus is crucified, we often say between two thieves, he was actually crucified between two insurrectionists. You know, the Romans didn't go through all that trouble to crucify someone, to crucify someone because they stole a loaf of bread. They were trying to overthrow the Roman government. And so they were put to death. It was very, very common. Well, when Christianity arises, we start to see that same sort of behavior directed not simply to Rome, but now to the early church. For example, in Acts chapter 23, we read this. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his taste more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Do you hear what's going on? A group of more than 40 Jewish men bound themselves by oath that they would neither eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. I mean, what a horrible, horrible oath. It doesn't make me wonder what those men did afterwards when they actually didn't kill him. Uh, perhaps it was one of those oaths that you don't actually have to keep. But it was such a wicked thing. But please note that rather than being a closely held secret, they went and openly told of their conspiracy to the chief priests and to the elders. Now, these Jewish Christians who are being persecuted have come out of this culture. It would have been natural that some of them would have said, we need to organize and strike back. If you've paid any attention to the American political scene over the past few years, well, first of all, um, I'm sorry, it's been hard. But if you've been paying any attention to the American political scene over the last few years, you know that there is always a following for those who say, they hit us, I'm going to lead us to hit them back harder. Right? Vengeance is ours. Vengeance is mine. It would have been natural for some of these Jewish Christians to think in that same way. We ought to take vows and oaths in order to, you know, the soft clergy up in front, the elder of our church doesn't want to do it, but we're going to take matters in our own hands and we're going to get deliverance and vindication. And James is saying that's totally at odds with being a Christian, where Jesus tells you to turn the other cheek and to entrust vengeance to God, to entrust your own circumstances and your enemies into the hands of the Lord. And so if we take these three points together, we can see that James is not emphatically forbidden such self-willed and selfish swearing because it is more important than faith, hope, and love. He is forbidding such behavior because it is the polar opposite of faith, hope, and love. Right? You, you can't do this if you're going to do that. So that in verses 13 through 20, he can say, this is what you should do instead. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, suffering and joy are at opposite ends of the spectrum of our experience. And by calling us to pray when we're suffering and to give praise, another type of prayer, actually, it's directed toward God, to give praise when we're cheerful, James is saying, in every matter of life, bring it to the Lord. Right? It's not just these two extremes, but it's the two extremes and everything in between. In every matter of life, bring it to the Lord. Now, I realize that some of you may not be here, I don't mean this building, but at this spot that I'm going to talk about in your spiritual lives right now, but I want to encourage you to pursue it if you're not. I want to encourage you to cultivate a life so that ordinarily throughout the day, when little things happen that make you happy, you thank God for it. And when you have struggles throughout your day, you offer them up to God in prayer. And when you have big, deep problems, maybe ask for other people to help you. You gather together, maybe your husband, your wife, your children, your pastor, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you cry out to God and say, this, Lord, needs your work. Now, you know, we don't do that with, like, someone important, say, a CEO at work. Because if you keep going into the CEO's office with big things and little things and everything in between, eventually you're going to get fired. The reason for that is your CEO, no matter how talented she might be or how talented he might be, is finite. They can't listen to you talk about everything in your life. But God is not limited in that way. So I'm encouraging you to cultivate a life where, just as a normal part of your routine, you're holding this ongoing conversation with God throughout the day, where you routinely give him thanks. Right? It doesn't have to be something big. It could be just a beautiful sunshine today. Give him thanks. Now, it's a wonderful blessing for you, for me too, of course, that you can go directly before the throne of grace at any hour of the day to talk to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's an extraordinary blessing. Nevertheless, James wants to remind us that the Christian life is not lived in splendid isolation. He writes, therefore, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, in this context, the sickness is serious. Right? This is a person who can't come to the elders, can't come to public worship. Um, you could say they're on their sickbed. That may also be implied with the idea that the elders pray over this person, but maybe that's not exactly what it means. This is someone you're seriously sick. And James explicitly says, call for the elders and they will come and pray for you. Now, I hardly need to mention this in our congregation, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. This is not an either-or. James is not saying, call for the elders instead of those secular medical professionals. Right? This is a both-end. Or as I like to say it, praise God and pass the penicillin. Right? We are to take advantage of all the medical advances God has given us today. But that does raise the question, why call for the elders at all? When we have such wonderful medical technology and care. Why not just go to the doctors and leave those busy elders alone? Well, James realizes that our physical well-being can also impact our emotional and spiritual well-being. And this is compounded by the fact that this sick person is easily isolated at home. They can't get out to worship with the people of God on a regular basis. 
So James says, if any of you is in that circumstance, you should call your elders, and we will come and pray with you and for you. Okay, but why call the elders? I mean, did James not get the memo about the priesthood of all believers? Right? Why the elders in particular and not just call a brother or sister in Christ? Well, in a few moments, James is going to expand this prayer to all of us praying for all of us. But here he has a particular reason, I think, to be calling for the elders. But I want to start with an important truth to Americans, that's us, most of us, who are so naturally individualistic. I'm going to quote Jeff Myers because I think Jeff Myers says this really well. He writes, Often in American evangelicalism, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is taken to mean that we all can be our own priests. This is a reversal of Martin Luther's original teaching on the subject. In the words of Timothy George, What Luther meant by the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is that every Christian is someone else's priest and that we are all priests to one another. Rather than a confirmation of the importance of our individuality in the Christian life, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is an affirmation that we need one another, that our communal and shared life with one another is significant, and essential to our spiritual growth. James' instruction for the sick to call for the elders to pray for him is not simply a statement about the office and the responsibility of the elders. Rather, it is more centrally a statement about the import of the church itself in the life of the believer. Beloved, we need each other. That's what James is saying. Don't suffer alone. Don't sit at home going, I don't know if God really loves me. Maybe I'm suffering because of my sins. No, call on the elders who have been given responsibility to shepherd your souls. Now, as I said, in a moment, James is going to broaden his appeal from the elders to all brothers and sisters. But there are good reasons for him to start by encouraging us to call upon the elders when we are so vulnerable. After all, the Lord has, in fact, commissioned elders to be shepherds for your souls. It's part of our responsibility. It's at the heart of our responsibility. And secondly, God has given to your ordained elders the specific authority to proclaim the forgiveness of your sins, to give you assurance of your salvation at a time when you need to hear that most. If you would like, we'd also be happy to anoint you with oil as a tangible outward sign of the work of the Holy Spirit, both for you and in you. But I think what he really has at the heart of what comes next is this idea of the elders bringing an assurance of pardon. Let's see how that plays out. It's admittedly a very challenging verse to interpret. James writes, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, from the rest of Scripture, we know this. James is not saying that if you have enough faith, or your elders have enough faith, every time they pray for you, you will get better. 
right? That is not what the Bible is teaching. Sickness is an ordinary part of the Christian life. In fact, he doesn't tell us to call for the faith healer. He says call for the elders. And apart from um, Elijah and Enoch, the, uh, the ratio between Christians who live and Christians who die is stubbornly very close to one-to-one. And it will be so until the Lord returns. James is not promising here that if you have enough faith, you will get healed. That's not the point at all. Rather than promising perpetual good health to Christians, so long as they or their elders have enough faith, James is focusing on two wonderful truths. First, the Lord does use prayer to bring blessing into the lives of other people. And these blessings include the Lord working directly to heal even the most dreadful of diseases. After all, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And second, the ultimate hope of the believer is not that he will enjoy a long life with good health. The ultimate hope of the believer is that whether in life or in death, we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and he will one day, as James say, raise us up. He will raise us up to everlasting life in glorified bodies so that we may live with him forever. Yes, James does expect elders to pray for physical healing, but that's not the heart of what our ministry is. Our ministry is to remind you that for Christ's sake, you are forgiven and fully accepted before God as his child, and that no matter what happens to you, Ultimately, you will be raised up and glorified to live with your Savior forever. The elders have a special role in this ministry, but the priesthood of all believers means that we are all to be engaged in regular prayer for one another. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Verses 16 through 18. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Frankly, it's a bit challenging to know for certain exactly what James means when he calls us to confess our sins to one another. Uh, for years, I took this as, I'm struggling with sin. I need to find a mature brother in Christ that I confess my sins. I tell him I'm struggling with these sins, sins I have against other people and with God. And my brother's going to pray for me and with me and hold me accountable to pursuing Christ. And that might be what it means. I mean, it's actually a really good practice to pursue. Uh, I do want to give you a caveat on that practice, however. Please make sure you're finding someone who's a mature believer before you start confessing your sins to them. Uh, a good rule of thumb is they ought to be, have been a Christian longer than you have. They ought to be showing a godly desire in their own lives. If you're not sure who that might be, I want to suggest you start with the ordained servants in this church, the deacons and elders that God has given to you. Right? People that you know are going to keep your confidences and seek your spiritual good. I mean, James is not calling us to set up a circle of chairs so we all just openly declare all of our sins before each other. That is not what is in view, 
and you ought to avoid that practice in your own personal life. So I think that's a viable choice. That may be what James means. But a number of commentators have convinced me there's another really good interpretation of this. Um, probably most forthrightly is uh, J. Alec Moitier. Um, Professor Moitier puts it this way. The biblical position regarding confessing sin can be summed up in this way. Confession must be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need and desire to receive forgiveness. And he's saying this is not about confessing our sins to God in front of someone. It's about confessing our sins to someone. And therefore, it must be that that's the person that we've offended, that we've sinned against. And of course, that's a a viable possibility, and both these alternatives have support from elsewhere in the Bible. If Moitier is right, James isn't talking about confessing secret sins to a brother or sister in order to seek spiritual support, although that might be a really wise thing for you to do. Rather, James is telling us that we ought to confess our sins, the sins we have committed against one another, to the person we have offended, so that through forgiveness and prayer there will be reconciliation along with emotional and spiritual healing. Please keep in mind that while there's offenses between you and your brothers and sisters, that will hinder your prayers. God makes that explicit in terms of conflict between husbands and wives. Right? So th- there's more to this dimension than just that, that individual reconciliation. Ruptured relationships harm the whole body, and they harm your relationship with God. Now, frankly, I have not been able to figure out which of these two things James has in mind. Um, the good news is both of them are biblical. So you ought to do both of them. Here's a truth we cannot doubt. James wants to impress upon us that the Lord does use the prayers of his people in powerful ways. Now, it's terribly wrong for us to imagine, um, you know, we're kind of insignificant people in the eyes of the world. I mean, some of you are pretty impactful in your own individual environments, but um, probably none of us is going to get interviewed on 60 Minutes this week, right? But it's wrong for us to imagine that because we are apparently insignificant in the eyes of the world, that therefore our prayers are only good for little things. You know, famous people, the Billy Grahams of the world, God will listen to them about big things. But but you and me, you know, we can pray for smaller stuff because we're not that important. Beloved, the power of prayer is not in us, it is in God, the one to whom we are praying, the one who holds every molecule in the entire universe in his sovereign hands. The power of prayer comes from the fact that we have been adopted into God's family. And therefore, the living God, who is exhaustively sovereign over every molecule in the universe, listens to our prayers, and he acts on our prayers to do great things. The power is not in us. It is in God. Now, isn't that precisely what James is saying? James writes, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He doesn't say, boy, it would be great if we had someone around like Elijah so that God would hear his prayers. No, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. 
and the earth bore its fruit. Beloved, do you face enormous challenges in your life right now? Your Father in heaven is infinitely bigger than your challenges, and he is eager to listen to your prayers. As Jesus himself tells us, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Let me say that again. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Cultivating a life of faith and hope necessarily means cultivating a life of prayer. And yet James has one more call that he wants to place upon our lives. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A family that prays together, both over physical ailments, right, over all manner of struggles, over physical ailments and also over sin, cannot simply allow one of our brothers and sisters to wander away from following the Lord. You know how hard this is, though, to pursue somebody who's wandering? Just let me be. I want to go my own way. But love demands we go after them. As Tom Wright puts it, to see someone wandering off in a dangerous direction And to do nothing about it is a tragic dereliction of duty. It may be hard to turn them back. They may insist that they are right and we are wrong. But the effort must be made precisely in the humility and patience which James has been urging all through his letter. When that is done, a bit of heaven arrives on earth. New life and forgiveness are there in person. Beloved, this call to love one another is the capstone to the extraordinary call that James has been placing upon our lives. That we would be a people who are marked out by faith, hope, and love. The Lord, through James, is calling us to invest our lives so that they have an impact for the kingdom of God that will last forever. Pursuing a brother or a sister who is wandering from faithfully following the Lord is not easy. Confronting a brother or sister over their sin with humility and gentleness out of a desire to see their relationship with the Lord restored, beloved, that is just downright hard. Yet this is what loving God and loving the other members of our church family demands from us. This can be incredibly difficult, but true love is up to the task. For love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The love that the Lord is calling us to exercise towards each other is not easy, but it is something truly great. Where can we focus our lives so that we know that they're going to have a lasting impact for good? The Lord tells us this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.